okay, this is conversation four. Bob talks about corruption in the courts, his work undercover while on medical leave, and further details about his policing partner, Rick Borelli, who was a member of the Chicago mob. Borelli is Bob's entry into the outfit's Byzantine gambling operations. Here we go. Hope you enjoy this one. Bob, so the last time we spoke, you had had this horrible accident and you were in the hospital convalescing. When do you decide to become an attorney? How is that decision made and why? When I first became a policeman, when I did make an arrest, I had to go to court the next morning. So it caused a real problem in terms of me getting any sleep because I would go to court in the morning. It would take me a little over an hour to get to court. It was the 26th in California, and I had to take three buses to get there. And more times than not, the people that were arrested would wind up with a public defender. And so I'd be sitting in court for three, four hours, and it'd be about five or six hours before I get back home. And when I get back home, uh, I'd only get maybe an hour or two sleep before I had to go, you know, wind up going back to school and then going back to work. So. I was living on probably on a number of days, living on only you know three or four hours of sleep, if that. During that time, when I would sit in court, I would see these lawyers coming in, and uh, they were like the kings. We we sat there like dummies waiting. If if I'm late for court, you know, because of the buses are late and all, I get yelled at. And yet, yet we get there, and we have to sit there and wait for these guys to come in. And when they come in. You know, they're like, they're like the kings. But I also saw that, you know, they seemed to have money and whatever. A lot of them, I, I, I watched as I watched them in the trials weren't that bright at all. They were, I'd watched them do these trials and in my own mind, I was a hell of a lot sharper than they were. And that's when I made the determination that I'm going to become a lawyer. Uh, that was how that, that was how that came about. Now, now and, it, when you're sitting through these cases, is this the first time you've been in a courtroom and are you thinking that lady justice is working or are you suspicious of the ethics of the court system in Chicago or is it just kind of a case by case situation where you're you see that the defense and or the prosecutors it's just luck of the draw the luck of the draw being you end up with someone bad representing you. As a patrol officer, you get, get a court date once a month where you go to court, trap the court on all your cases. From the very beginning, you know, I saw exactly how the system worked. When when I went to when you go to traffic court, you go in there, you go up, they have a police room upstairs. Thirty or forty or fifty at any one time up there. First in the morning you have the minor courts. And then you have a major court, the major courtrooms you go to in the afternoon. So you're there, you're there pretty much all day. From the very first day I go to traffic court like that, I've read and heard that there was corruption, and I'm assuming there's some. When I get up there, I see exactly how it works. There was a lawyer that would come up. His name was Mel Cantor. He had been a judge, and he got kicked off the judge for taking, you know, for taking a bribe or whatever. And he'd be up there and basically passing out money to the police. And when they came down, they're supposed to, you know, they're supposed to go in and say the right thing when they go in the court. So I saw, I saw right away from the very beginning exactly how the system worked, not realizing even how bad it was. 
that you know that seeing the corruption there in traffic court and you you would see these hall rats these other lawyers walking around including mel in fact mel they called the candy man because he always had pockets full of candy and he'd walk by and pass out candy but but he'd also would be passing out bribes to everybody uh you know when when that and when that happened up there again uh he came over introduced himself when he first came up to me he came up with the court sergeant, the one who was in charge of the room. He introduced him to me. This is so-and-so. You know, it's his first time in here. Oh, hi. Well, you know, and he handed me some candy. And then he said, well, you know, after after court, he says, after court, he says, uh, you know, there'll be, there'll be something for you. And, and I pretty much told him at that stage, I, I, no, I don't want anything. I don't want anything. You know, I'm in law school and whatever. And, uh, you know. And, but, it's that brazen. Well, what, 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 he, the way they worked it, in fact, what he what he had said to me was, and again, he he was Mel was nobody's fool. He had already been apparently uh, arrested and indicted for, you know, for bribery, which, and he wound up beating it. And I'm, I'm I'm sure I know how and why, because you know when I became part of the inner circle there at the first ward. I saw how things were done in the court system. What they would do is all he said was basically after the case is over, he said, you know, the, he wouldn't give me the money. The sergeant would be the one giving me the money, uh, you know, because I had a couple of cases down there in, in DUI court. What that taught me was that, you know, you were just basically uh, out there making making street stops. I didn't like giving out tickets. Uh, I, the people out there, were basically poor people in the neighborhood. They were, you know, like my family and, and the rest. Uh, they were, they were, you know, real hardworking people. And most of them out there in the South Side had big families. A lot of Catholics and had big families. And I, I knew how important it was to have to keep their driver's licenses. Some of these guys were truck drivers and and, and whatever. So I would make a lot of stops, but I rarely gave out tickets. I mean, the person had to write their own ticket by, you know, by giving me a hard time or by, you know, calling me names or whatever. I, so I would stop giving out DUIs because I felt I was just pimping for these people. When you get on the inside, as you had, you saw that it was really a wheel turning where the police wanted to give these tickets to get people into the system. And if you're a cop that writes that ticket, you go to court that one time every month. You're also getting paid under the table for being there. In essence, is that kind of the game? Yes. And, that, and that's what, that's what obviously encouraged these traffic coppers and even some of the others to give out tickets to people. I mean, you know, it, it definitely would, but you know, it was just part of, it was part of, they, they eventually indicted. And, and I knew too, right from the very start, there's no way this can go on forever. I saw right away what, how the system was, and I was not going to be part of that that I also wasn't going to be a part of, you know, of hurting these people, you know, by giving them, by giving them tickets, because that would, you know, that was, I wasn't, I used the term to myself, I'm pimping, pimping for these people. I give, I, I lock them up for a DUI. He goes over there to traffic court. He winds up with a lawyer like Mel Canner. It's going to cost them at that time, probably about five, six, seven hundred dollars and all kinds of other problems or he loses his license and that's his job. I, I refuse to do that. It, it'll take a minute or two but to explain, you know, we had all kinds of taverns out there in the southeast side, all kinds of them. And, you know, at night you could probably, I could have probably given out two or three every single night 
because these bars that were open until four o'clock, you know, a majority of the people in there were, you know, would walk out sideways and whatever. I realized right from the start, Neil, that the system was the system was corrupt. And there's no question about that. But I also realized I wasn't going to get involved in it. And so, your, uh, so this decision to become an attorney was it done from from an altruistic standpoint, and you could be doing good for people who are getting screwed over by the Mel Cantors or the system, or was it more about here's another job opportunity or a challenge? Because it seems like you always wanted to rise to the challenge, and you're an overachiever, and you're watching these guys. You probably watched them and said, "I could be way better at this than them." Was it that simple that you wanted the challenge to become an attorney? Well, all the, the ego of it too, you know, everybody looked up to these attorneys, you know, when, as a policeman, when you come into court, you're like a secondary citizen, uh, you know, and, and if I be late and I be late because I can't catch the buses and the rest of it, the, uh, you know, you get yelled at, you know, the judges would yell at you and whatever you sit there other times and you're waiting for hours for a lawyer to show up on the case. And, and when he comes, I'd be, well, wow, here he comes. It was just an ego thing all the way around and a way to wow, you know. And uh, and I knew I'd have no problem in law school and the rest of it. I, I knew from the start that that would never have been a problem. I made the determination to become a lawyer, uh, you know, for for all those reasons. But in, in the moment I did that, that's when I, in fact, I would go to court sometimes on other arrests, you know, other policemen. You know, would make the arrest. There would be three of us. It was always me that would go to court because I felt I'll watch, I'll watch, and I'll learn. And I learned by watching some of these imbeciles make the mistakes I watched them make in terms of you know when they're cross-examining somebody and whatever. So uh, I took that as a you know that was my learning right there. You know, watching these other people, and even with even with bad lawyers. They might ask a question that elicited a certain response, you know, and uh, and I would, you know, that's how I learned how to cross-examine by watching these other guys make fools of themselves. Did you know of any other police officers that were attorneys, or were you a unicorn? At that time, I didn't know of any other policemen uh, that were even in law school. In fact, nobody even knew I was a policeman when I was going to school until I got into that fight with Johnny Diarco. I never wore my uniform to uh, to school. No, you know, I just transferred over into day school, and the only two friends I had were Mike Daly and, and Turk Muller. Well, what was going on, too, during that time were the riots. When Kennedy got killed, I remember I was there at the lunch table with Turk and with, and with Mike, and some girls came over crying. Kennedy got killed and whatever, and, you know, my own thing was, well, you know, gee, I mean, what's, what's the, okay, so that's that's too bad, but I mean, they were like all being hysterical. I think nothing of it. But uh, when I go home, I get ready and and I go to work. And when when I get into when I get into the police station, they issued us some helmets and they told that we're going over to they had a paddy wagon and they loaded us up and they took us over to Pulaski. We sat there and they indicated that there's you know and we could we could see we could see fires that were the city was basically on fire. And we could hear gunshots and whatever. And because JFK sixty three, MLK, I think the riots were sixty eight. It was about sixty three uh, before it, MLK, it before like, Martin Luther King's death. What was in what what, what, what riots were in sixty three? The Chicago race riot of sixty four. 
was centered in Dixmore, Illinois, a suburb southwest of the city. And I think there was another riot when, when a fire truck ran over somebody, ran over a black lady. What happened was, and as I said, the, the riots, and these were real riots, not like these others where they're just for the most part, you know, running around and breaking windows and stealing stuff. They started off by by burning and, and by looting and by shooting. And then anyhow, we got, we got brought over to Pulaski. We're all sitting in a squad room. There were about maybe, I'd say, a dozen others all around. There were probably close to like 100 policemen there. And what, they, what was happening at that time was uh, they were looking for volunteers to go with the local policemen to answer the calls. And uh, I remember I volunteered to go do it. We're in the alleys, and they're shooting at us, and we're shooting at them. But, I mean, it was a real a real Wild West situation. There was another riot, and uh, I'm trying to, again, I'm not sure which one it was, but again, when I, when I was at Loyola, uh, another time there was a riot that broke out, I, and I'm talking with my friend, and Bill Murphy happened to be over there. You know, he went to Marquette. He didn't go to Loyola, but he happened to be there this particular day. What happened was there was a, a riot going on. Bill suddenly uh, found out that he was called into the National Guard. And he was supposed to report to the National Guard. And here we are with just our pistols. And I told Bill, I'd give him a ride over to the National Guard. The National Guard was over there someplace, I think, on Madison Street. But I wanted I wanted to use one of his rifles. I gave Bill a ride over to the, to the armory. And I followed the fire trucks in there. I was going west on Madison. I got him to the armory. I drop him off. And when I drop him off, suddenly... I can't go back because there's fires behind me. There's riots all over the place. There's these black people out there. They're dragging people out of the cars. And, and I had to follow the fire trucks further west. And I wind up over at Pulaski. I know at Pulaski, there's a, an entrance to come back to go home. And as I turn, you can't move. Traffic is all stopped. And I, I go a short distance. Now, I've got the, I've got the barrel of the gun sticking up, you know, to the left of me. And I've got my pistol out now and I got the pistol in the seat alongside me and, and I'm, I'm stopping. I can't go. So finally, fuck this. I go on the sidewalk because I look up and I see there was a meat truck up there, a short about a half a block in front of me. They had dragged this guy out of the truck. His, his white thing was all full of blood and there, there's no way I can do something to help. Uh, I get myself killed getting out of it, so I get on the I get on the sidewalk, and I just start running. I ran over a few people. I just started going, probably not real fast, but I was going about maybe fifteen twenty, and people are trying to jump out of the way, and I I remember it was so ironic. I've got the radio on, and here you got this jackass on the radio saying, "Don't panic, don't believe the rumors about the city being burned down." And I'm in the middle of it. When I get over to turn on to the Stevenson to come back to the Dan Ryan to go south, a bunch of the kids and some of these kids weren't kids; they were adults. They're standing on the overpass, throwing rocks, and the cars going by down below. Right after those riots, that's when they started putting those like chain link. A lot of people had gotten hurt real seriously. And one of the things I'll never forget, I get back home. I've got the shotgun in my hand, and my mother was standing there. And my mother starts yelling at me, you're not bringing that into the house. And I exploded at her. You know, get out of my way. You have no idea what's in it. I had just left this crazy scene. Let's go back for a moment 
to the near fatal accident that leaves you in the hospital for nine months. After you recover, do you go back to police work? What happens next? No, they wouldn't let me go back to work. When I, when I finally was released from the hospital, I, I had a problem with my left hand because my left hand had almost been severed. They wouldn't let me go back. In fact, I, I begged them. You know, most of these police were trying to, they would go downtown and you, you could pay to stay in the medical role. I was in there trying to go back to work and they wouldn't let me. So I'm bored to death. So what I'm doing, I'm going down to Rush Street drinking every night. And that's why I pal up with my buddy, Tony Corsentino, who was a vice detective in the 18th district. And I'm hanging around with him. And while he's working undercover, I'm basically working with him. We're making arrests down there, you know, for, for different things. We're getting into fights with people. We're getting involved in all kinds of, you know, police activities down there. I'm not supposed to be doing anything. I'm supposed to be in the medical, but I'm doing it because I'm bored to death and I'm having a ball doing it down there. To so me, you're that's... so you're on medical leave, but you're so bored you choose to continue to surreptitiously work as a police officer. You're so bored and you love the job so much that you kind of go undercover with this detective. I'm with Tony and I'm over there in the in the in the parks and whatever in the decoy because there were a bunch of robberies going on over in Lincoln Park. People were getting robbed. These guys were coming out of the bushes and, and robbing them and sometimes beating them up. Uh, there were these groups, and it turned out, you know, when we started arresting them, they were from Cabrini Green. That's how they were making a living. And what I would do is I'd put on a Loyola, a Loyola you know, sweatshirt and whatever, and uh, we'd, have, we'd have three or four guys behind me uh, hiding in the bushes and I'd walk like I was drunk. I'd go out there and act like I was drunk. And when they'd come out to attack me, that's when we would turn the tables on them and beat the living hell out of them and arrest them and whatever. I enjoyed doing that. The sergeant took a liking to me. A month or two later, I'm able to go back to work as a, as a policeman in the fourth district. He had his commander. He had commander brash asked my commander tell my commander he'd like to transfer me down there because I was supposed to be, they wanted me to work vice down there with them. And when I, and when I go there and they wanted to give me money as a vice, as a vice detective, and I tell them, no, that's when I wound up the very next day being put to a squad car with Rick Borelli, who was the mob. <laughs> you're still in law school. You recover. You're out of the hospital. You're now working in the 18th district as a vice cop. But you end up back in a squad car. You're still in law school, correct? I'm going to be going into my last year of law school. So tell me about Rick Borelli. Rick Borelli was a was a policeman, and and he was working with the what they call the cover car. You have so many cars in the district, and they're basically one man cars. The cover car is a two man car, and you're supposed to go wherever there's trouble. In other words, if there's, you know, a disturbance or if there's, you know, somebody with a gun or if there's some real serious thing, other police need covers, you go and you join up with them. I remember we were, we were in the, we get in the car. It was a big guy, but, you know, kind of faddish, Italian, very Italian looking. Uh, he was probably about maybe six foot, probably weighed about 220 pounds or so, but a lot of it was a big old fat belly. Uh, you know, not a muscular type. He was like a, like a faggish type. And he wasn't, a, he was right around my age. He wasn't a whole lot older than me, probably about maybe four or five years older than me. By this time now, I'm about 23, I think. The very first 
morning with him. Well, we went over and we got some we got some breakfast, and then he drove over and he and he parked in a in like a school a school parking lot, and he said to me, "Do you play cards?" And I said, "Yeah." And he says, oh, "You want to you want to you want to play a little poker, nickel dime poker?" You know, well, okay. So we start we start playing poker, and we start talking. Who who are you? What are you? And tell him what I'm all about and whatever. And I'm in law school. Oh, no kidding. And you know, but about but about but about. And we we formed kind of an interesting friendship. And, and so and they had me working with him for a, for a couple of days. And while we're there in the car, he says to me, uh, "No, I don't. I don't play sports." He he offers me a he offers me a proposition. I'm a policeman, and I remember my salary was fifty six hundred dollars a year. And he says, and he takes, and he explains to me. He says, I do a little gambling. He said, uh, and I need somebody to make some bets for me. He says, would you be interested in doing that? I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I have to make. I want to make some bets, and I don't want them to know it's me making the bets. He said, I need somebody to be. In fact, he used the word. He said. I need somebody to be my face, to be your what? And he said, to be my face. He said, you make the bets for me. Uh, I'll give you this phone number. You call up. I'll tell you what bets to make. And you make these bets to me. If you wind up winning, you'll collect the money. I'll I'll introduce you to some of these people and tell them that you're, you're one of the, you know, one of one one of my customers. If you win, uh, you'll collect the money and you'll give me the money and you keep, you'll keep a hundred dollars a week yourself for doing it. (laughs) And, and, and my eyes pop open. You'll give me a hundred dollars a week, and, and that's all I have to do. And he said, "Well, I'll explain. Are you interested?" And I said, "You, you bet your life, I'm interested." And that's how I got involved with with all the gambling and, and with all the other stuff. I find out a lot of things afterwards as to why and so forth. Uh, but you know, at this stage, okay, great, we'll do it. So here's the deal: each day. First, he has me call this phone number, and I use a number. He says, "You'll call this number. You'll talk to somebody. You'll give him that. You'll give him this number as your code, and you'll give him these bets." And he was telling me that I want to bet five hundred dollars a game. It was baseball season at this time. He says, "I want to bet five hundred dollars a game." Uh, you know, and you call up and you'll get, you'll find out what the odds are. And then you call me and tell me what the odds are. And I'll tell you how much, how much to bet and how many games to bet. And he would bet seven, eight, nine games a day, uh, you know, at $500, at $500 a piece. Why and did he need you as a cutout? He could not bet himself because he was in trouble for betting and losing. He's a, he's a bookmaker himself. He's one of the guys working in these offices taking the bets. He's been giving them uh, bets and when it's not. And then when it's time for him to collect the money to turn over to them, he didn't have it. And he, yeah, he was in trouble for that. He had been betting himself legitimately with, with these other people. Until he got in trouble like this and, and, and owed you know, his own boss's money. It's a real organization. It's an unbelievable organization because it's how I started making all kinds of money. He had me come with him out to the western suburbs, out to Elmwood Park and those areas where these people would meet two, three times a week. And this is where he brought me. He introduced me as a friend as a friend and as a policeman in the 18th District. And he gave them the impression I came from a wealthy family. You know, he's in law school and, you know, and, and you know, but he's got all kinds of money. He's a customer of mine and whatever. And, uh, and I got to meet some of these other, these other bookmakers. The first day, 
he winds up losing about 1800 Initially, when this ha- is happening, I'm a little concerned that, uh, you know, there may be a problem now when it's, you know, when it's time to make the payoffs and he's not going to give me the money to pay these people. We, we go through it. In the first week, when the week is over, he lost about, I think, about $4,500. He gives me the money. He meets me, gives me the money. We take a ride out to one of the bars or clubs out there. I make the payments. He gave me $100 for myself. And, you know, wow. This was great. The next week, after the first couple of days, and he's losing, I'm thinking to myself, gee, you know, I had met, I, I had been, now I'm meeting these other people that are bookmakers themselves as I'm, as I'm wandering through the bar. And they're telling me, if you want to, if you need another place to make bets, you know, I'll give me my number, give, you know, give me a call. I'm thinking, absolutely. You know, I, I know finance. I know money. When I'm calling and giving him a line to make the bets and he tells me what he wants and what the numbers are going to be, if I can find a place where the numbers are better, are, are better than that. In other words, instead of laying 150, I can lay 140 or 130. You know, I can, I can maneuver where I can give some of the bets, some of the bets to, you know, to his guy and some of the bets somewhere else at a much, much better price. And, uh, and I can, I can wind up making money every single day without doing anything. I, Ricky, Ricky calls me. I tell him St. Louis is 170. They had a 20 cent line. If you bet a hundred dollars on St. Louis and you lose, you lose $170, you lose $170. If you want the other side and you bet a hundred dollars, you win $150. There's like a 20 cent big in there. But if I give Ricky a line of 170 on those, on the one game and I can find some place where I can bet it at 140 or one, even if I could do it for 165, there'd be a little something. But if I can get 10 or 20 cent difference on that, if Ricky wins the game, he only wins, you know, a hundred dollars. If he loses, he loses a hundred and seventy for each hundred. If I hit, if I find it someplace else where I can bet the game at one fifty, if I lose, I lose a hundred and fifty dollars. But if I win, I still win a hundred because you're you're laying a hundred and fifty to a hundred. So you're talking twenty dollars. You're twenty for twenty dollars for each hundred. If you're talking five hundred dollars. That's a hundred dollars a game. If St. Louis loses, you know, I make a hundred dollars and he's betting five games a day like this. I can make, not everyone will lose, say, say one or two of them lose, you know, I'm making automatically two, three hundred dollars, uh, you know, every day, no matter what. It got to the point, my biggest worry was getting caught with that money. That was my biggest worry. The only things, the only crimes I worried about. It was, were things like, you know, uh, were things like not killing somebody and whatever. I mean, that to me was wrong and something I wouldn't do because I'd be, you know, the, the, we had, we, you wind up going to hell, in my opinion, for that because of the way I was raised. Certainly this is illegal, but like everything else, everybody is doing it and whatever. I just, I, I just felt, hey, you know, uh, K Sarah Sarah, I'm making a thousand, two thousand a day. So you're making and, and here, at this point you're making more money than you've ever made in your life. Oh, I mean, I mean, there are no words to describe it. Uh, you know, here, here, here I am. As I said, I mean, I'm I'm driving around in a bus, you know, because you know I've got no money in my pocket and whatever. And now, 
even when he told me a hundred dollars a week, that's what my salary. That's more than my salary because that's cash I'm getting. I'm making money, you know, unbelievable money, you know, and and so right away I'm to the point where you know I'm I'm putting in hours. How long did this go on the gambling? No, this this was when I was still a policeman, prior to being you know prior to becoming a lawyer. But did this you is, did you, know, you continue the gambling throughout your law career, or did it fade because you became? Oh yeah, I became probably the biggest better in the whole city. I was betting millions. I'm representing all the bookmakers, but I'm also playing with a lot of them. But it changed after a period of time where it couldn't be done the same way. But these guys used to pay people to go out there and live in Vegas to call in to call in the odds, you know, from Vegas. I'm maneuvering in every way. Now, that, are you that, are you doing this all in your head? How are you keeping this organized? Oh no, it wasn't even in my head. I mean, I had I fell out pamphlets almost every day. It sounds like thousands of dollars are coming in every month. How are you managing the cash? When I was a uh, policeman there at the 18th District, we had the Cosmopolitan Bank right there around the corner. It was right there in the corner of Clark, of Clark and Chicago. Right across from the bank is where is the, where the restaurant was, where I would meet with Marco and those people two, three times a week, you know, for breakfast, where you know where we'd make the payoffs and the rest of it. Initially, I opened the you know the little tiny box that you have, the little square one. Within about two weeks. You know that that was filled, and I opened a I opened a you know a big box, the biggest they had. Uh, within a couple of months, within about two three months, that box was completely filled, and I had open boxes in two other banks. Uh, you know because I use phony names. I didn't open boxes. They never asked you for IDs or the rest of it. And and I had boxes in like three different places. I mean the money was unbelievable that was coming in. But the other things I did to make even more. I put in a good couple hours in the problems I had sometimes, you know, we didn't have uh, a lot of phones. You didn't have, you know, call waiting. When you try to call to make your bets, the lines are busy because he's, you know, he's taking other bets. This was the problem. I, the, the one problem that I had sometimes, and I wind up being stuck holding more than I wanted to, but as many times as not, they wound up being, they wound up being winners. Because, you know, I couldn't get through. And other times there'd be a problem when somebody owed me four or five, six thousand and he and he came up short. But again, within a very short period of time, we're talking within about two or three months, I had like thousands of dollars. And what you gotta understand, Neil, here's this here's this guy who just a few months before that is getting, you know, less than a hundred dollars a week, you know, paycheck. And paying his rent and paying, you know, his car payment and everything else on that. Uh, and at the same time, I'm out there going to these nightclubs all the time with pockets full of money, dealing with more and more of these, uh, you know, bookmakers who see me, you know, flashing with flashing with all kinds of money, spending all spending all kinds of money. And now here's something else that was really bizarre that happened when I was there at the 18th District. Now again, in the beginning, I don't realize these guys are mobsters. I just think that they're gamblers. How did the light go off? When I first realized what they're all about in terms of being mobsters, you know, I'm meeting with Ricky every day, you know, and over at the breakfast before we, before we start working. Ricky's job as a policeman was to do traffic control under the Tribune building. There's a stoplight under the Tribune building, or there was 50 years ago. That was his job, to supposedly do traffic control at that stoplight. 
what Ricky would do is he would get the radio. They had those big radios that, you know, that we had. Ricky would, would get the radio at seven o'clock. He'd be at seven o'clock roll call. He would get the radio. He'd go over and have breakfast over there at the, at the restaurant. He'd go over to the Tribune building. He'd be down there for about five minutes. He would go upstairs in the Tribune because he had customers up there because he was a book, he was bookmaking. And then he'd be gone from there about 10 minutes later. And that was his day. He'd bring the radio back at 3.30. That was his job as a policeman. Was he in the mafia? Yes, he was part of the mob. He was part of Marco's crew. And I'm out with him two, three nights a week. I'm starting to have big card games at my house. He tells me, and I met his girlfriend, he tells me that his girlfriend had been raped and he was furious. And what he did was he had he had, uh, he had a lot of contacts with detectives and the rest. Well, I found a lot of these guys were, were mob related. They had a uh, lineup and he told his girlfriend, you know, when they had the guy they thought did it, uh, somebody who lived not far from where it happened. And he said, we're going to have a lineup, but, you know, when you go there, don't identify. You know, if you spot him, tell me who it is and don't, you know, don't identify him. She identifies the guy that, you know, the guy that uh, supposedly raped her. And I had no reason to doubt her. What they did, and Ricky's telling me what they, they planned on doing and what they did, him and Marco waited outside of where the guy lived. When the guy came home, they beat him with pool cues uh, until he was unconscious. And then they threw lighter fluid on him, lit him up. And when he woke up again, they beat him again. They beat him again until he was unconscious. The guy was taken to the hospital. And then Ricky the next day uh, says, yeah, we uh, I just called the hospital and and told this piece of shit that when you get out, we're going to do it again. Well, the guy moved. But no, I found out these guys were, these guys were, you know, mobsters. Marco was one of the, uh, was one of the main killers, you know, for the, for the mob. But anyhow, now every morning when you come in there, again, during this time too, riot, the riots are going on and I'm building a reputation there because during the riots, uh, there was a lot of shootings over there at, at Cabrini Green. We were over there one time. And the police are all afraid to go because they're all, you know, they're shooting from the building. Well, I happened to have a car. I happened to, at that time, I, I had bought a couple of carbines and uh, I wind up running over there and I wind up, you know, I wind up blasting the way for everybody else to come. And I did other crazy things like that and build a reputation there. Uh, one, one crazy individual. And so, so I'm having, we're having the roll call and the commander of the roll call tells us nobody's allowed to go anymore over to Mama DeLuca's to this restaurant over on right off Sedgwick and, and uh, division there. And nobody's allowed to go in there because it's a, his words, it's a mob joint. So no policeman, because a lot of the policemen would go there for lunch and for, you know, and, and even for dinner and whatever, that's where they would hang out. That was the favorite hangout. I had never been there before. I asked one of the other guys there, where's this place? He says, it's over on Sedgwick and whatever. It's an Italian restaurant. That's, that's where, <laughs> that's where I go for lunch. Of course. And, and I, I go, I go in there and I meet Pat. Pat DeLuca was the owner. His wife was, his wife was Dolly. And, uh, and I go in there and, and, uh, sit down and, you know, and here's Pat and as his usual costume was a, like a white, a white, like half schmuck and was always full of like blood. There was always like blood and grease and whatever. <laughs> and this is at lunchtime. 
And it's a real small place. It only holds about maybe 25 people. It, it actually turned out that this wound up just being a front for Pam. When you say a front, when you say a front, like like money laundering or or just a he, he was involved. He was involved in all kinds of all kinds of things. He had all kinds of unbelievable contacts in traffic court, uh, and I wind up using him initially to take care of my parking tickets because I was getting about ten twenty tickets a day. When I come in there for lunch, you know, I sit down at, at one of these little tables, and Pat motions me over. You know, come over here, come here. He says, you know. He said, and he says to me, you'll see a bunch of your friends in here. And I said, no, I won't. Word is out. I'm not making this up. I mean, it probably would sound like it. He said, you know, you're going to see in some things I never forget. He says to me, you're going to see a bunch of your friends in here. And because, you know, there were no, obviously no other policemen in there, just about maybe like three people. Because it was about maybe 12 o'clock, 1130, 12 o'clock. And I says, no, you won't. Then, you know, and I told him, I said, because we were told at roll call that we couldn't come in there for lunch. And he says, then why are you here? I said, for that reason, we became the closest of friends ever, ever since. That was my introduction to Pat, you know, to him, to Pat. It turns out he knows Marco and all those people and, and he's connected with all those people and whatever. And what happens now too with this, this is the place. And now you got to understand, I've got my pockets full of money. When I start practicing law, and even even before that, I'm I'm inviting all kinds of people there for uh, you know for dinners. Uh, this is why I'm still a policeman even before I start. But I'm a lawyer within about a year, and I'd be inviting all these different people who it turned out you know would would be mobsters and the rest of it. Uh, and I started doing that almost on a weekly basis. I'd also have like family and friends, but on different days. I'd never, never did I mix my family or my friends with the mobster types. Never. The other thing that's happening at the same time, while while all this is craziness, I mean, this is an unbelievable world I'm living in now. You know, that's when I'm at the 18th district. Count Dante comes, hires me to represent him and yeah, on his case. And we start running around together. Thank you for listening and stay connected as our story is about to enter headlong into Chicago's underworld. Our next conversation is about the notorious Count Dante. Count Dante was a colorful character involved in multiple murders in the legendary Perlator Armored Express heist in 1974. 